This 10-week series that we start today uh, looks at the Ten Commandments that God has given to all those that, who, who love Him. And uh, as we look at each week at a different commandment, we're going to see also that there's a corresponding passage in the New Testament with that commandment. And it reminds us that God's way of living through His law, through His moral law, is still valid for us today and still very relevant for us today. Now, we have to notice that the Ten, ten Commandments have not changed. They're not, uh, go, they've not gone away. They're not irrelevant. They're not erased because of the gospel, right? Um, they remain in place today uh, to follow God, to, to glorify God well, and as a result, to live our best life possible, in a sense, under, underneath his direction. So I want to do a little quiz before we get started. Before, uh, before we get into the sermon, uh, without looking at a phone or a Bible, I want you to tell me, where do you find the Ten Commandments in the Scriptures? Exodus chapter 20? I knew Anika would know it. Gosh. Uh, where else? Huh? Deuteronomy? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, Deuteronomy 5, yes. I've got it written down here, so I'm cheating. Uh, Any place else? Matthew? I guess you could say that, yes. Leviticus 19. Uh, there's a partial set in Leviticus 19, and Exodus 34 is sometimes considered a ritual decalogue. So I also want to ask you, how many of the Ten Commandments can you name without looking at your phone or your Bible? Oh, come on, you've got to know one of them. Do not put other gods before me. Shout it out loud. Graven images. Shall not kill. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. Huh? Keep the holy of the Sabbath. What did we miss? Do not lie. All right. Good. All right. That's, that's pretty good. You guys got it. Anyway. But isn't it funny we talk about these things and sometimes we don't even know where they're found in the scriptures, right? And these things are so central and so important to the Christian life that we should know those things. So look with me, look with me to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3 on page 52, right in the very beginning of the Bible. Um, 52, page, uh, page 52, Exodus 20, 1 through 3 in your pew Bibles where it says this. And God spoke all these words. This is God's word, right? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Each of these phrases is very important. Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me, right? This obviously basically tells us to love God more than anything else, to, to place him first before anything or any, anyone else in all of the world, right? I want you to imagine yourself sitting there at the time of Christ, and, and you're sitting there, and he's right there with you, and you're listening to him, maybe sitting in a crowd, listening to him teach, listening to him answer questions. He's accessible, and you can ask Jesus anything you want. 
What would you ask him, right? Like, would you ask him if it's right to eat the middle out of the Oreo before you eat the cookie part? Or why women speak on average 40,000 more words a day than men, which is true. On our backpacking trip, at the, at the end of it, we did a stationary campsite where they had a bathroom. And uh, all the women would go to the bathroom together. And they're like 200 yards away from us, from our campsite. And we could just hear them in there, just jib-jabbering away for like a half an hour every time they went to the bathroom. Um, and all the guys are sitting around the campfire just totally silent. You know, it's just, it was funny. But anyway, or would you ask him, you know, what he scribbled in the sand when those guys were going to stone that woman to death? You remember that? I've always wondered what he scribbled in the sand. Or maybe what makes Chick-fil-A sauce so good, right? Or who killed Jimmy Hoffa? Wouldn't that be nice to know? Uh, I don't know if we know that or not. The movie came out, but we're not really sure if that's true. But... Um, But whatever you'd ask him, one guy had an opportunity to do that in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, and he asked Jesus a specific question in this moment of accessibility with him, right? And the question was, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus clearly answers him, telling him to love God and to love others, basically summarizing right, what he said, and that, and that there's no greater commandment than these. And that, my friends, summarizes all of the Ten Commandments, that statement. Turn with me to page 693 of your pew Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and we're going from verses 28 through 31, in the, and we're going to read that story. And it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, every little bit of you, right? And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, I want you to notice that he begins by quoting the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is synonymous with the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. But the question is, why would we say that these two statements encompass all of the Ten Commandments or summarize all of the Ten Commandments? Well, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism Uh, shows us how the structure of the Ten Commandments follows Jesus' answer in Mark 12. It first asks a question, and then it answers it. And the question is, how are these commandments divided, right? How are they divided? Answer in two tables, right? The first has four commandments uh, teaching us how we ought to live in relationship with, with God. And the second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor, So Jesus' two statements embody those two tables, the four and the six commandments, right? The first four commandments teach us how we ought to live in relationship to God. As Jesus said, we should love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength. And then we do so by putting him first in life, don't we? Which is what the first commandment teaches. You shall have no other gods before me, as he had phrased it to Moses Upon first giving it to him, it's like a fizzy. 
Anyway, uh, we ran out of water back there. We got to get some more water. But, but we also noticed that in breaking any other commandment, two through nine, we automatically break the first commandment. Since if I break another commandment, I automatically show contempt for God's desires in his commandments by putting my desires before his. In essence, what I'm doing there is I'm putting myself in place of God, right? So the answer really is all the commandments are equally important since Jesus' answer embodies both of those tables of the Ten Commandments. So it, goes, it also goes to say that follow the first commandment and you automatically will follow all the rest. Follow the first commandment and you will automatically follow all the rest. And God is gracious. We know that. We, you know, he, he understands it's not enough to tell us to do something. We can't just you know, will our way into putting God first and following these things well. We need his help. And he's provided it in a powerfully sort of motivating way, and that is by rescuing us. Always rescuing, rescuing us. Exodus 20, verse 2 states, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, uh, out of the house of slavery or out of the land of slavery. And so the Ten Commandments begin with this important reminder of what God has done and what God continually does throughout history, and that is that God rescues his people, right? Exodus 20, verse 2, is therefore sort of a precursor to the gospel. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual reality in Christ, right? Remember, the the lintel and doorpost that we have back here, uh, painted with the blood of, the, uh, of that sacrificed lamb during the first or, or the last plague that was brought upon Pharaoh in Egypt to release the Israelites, right? There were 10 plagues, by the way. And the firstborn in that plague, the firstborn of every household in Egypt would die when the angel of death passed throughout Egypt, right? But if you remember, the Israelites were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and to paint this, their doorposts and their lintels of their homes with the blood of that lamb. And as a result, the angel passed over that home and nobody in that home died, right? So we have Passover, right, that great uh, celebration in Judaism, a a foreshadow of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, his shedding of blood on the cross for us. Now, the Israelites were obviously enslaved in Egypt. They They were worked to death. They were controlled. They were oppressed and all of that. And we may not be physically enslaved to someone else, but we are enslaved by sin that manifests itself in our passions, in our desires, or into certain uh, external powers over us, right? And we have to remember and we have to know this, that not even God's law could save us from that. God's law reveals it, but it doesn't save us from it. And that's why we categorize sin as slavery. And this today is Juneteenth where we celebrate the ending of slavery in America. And by the way, that was, that was mitigated through the, the witness and the, the, the efforts of many Christians seeing that that would end, right? Because we literally have no choice in being controlled by sin without Christ, right? 
We were controlled, we were enslaved, we were oppressed by our own passions and desires, our own sinful nature. Nothing could set us free. We were slaves to it. But we also have to remember that we are culpable in that sin as well. It doesn't absolve us of responsibility because we chose that route. We chose to turn our back on God. We chose to rely on ourselves and not on God. And Paul states in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Think about that. The wages of sin is death. And wages are what you earn. So God is paying you what you've earned. He is giving you the death sentence. Capital punishment, so to speak. Right? So God pays out to us what we've earned by our choices. Sin is our responsibility, and therefore it requires repentance to come to salvation. But we also know that God is rich in mercy. He enters our world in the person of Jesus Christ. We literally believe as Christians that Jesus was God incarnate. He was fully God and fully man. He walked this earth, he takes on our burden, and he sets us free and if we will repent and trust in him. Repent and trust, two important words in the Christian life. As Paul said to us in Ephesians chapter two, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were spiritually dead, right? In which you used to live when you, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is Satan. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We deserved it. It was our wages, right? But because of his great love for us, so God makes the move for salvation. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. That's, you know, that's in, in, he did it for us, right? Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Wonderful passage. Probably, it could be my favorite passage, Ephesians chapter 2. So, saved once for all, once saved, always saved, can't lose it, because then it would mean that I have something to do with it. Past, present, and future sin, all covered by the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Now, if we look at sin as being in debt to the bank, it's not as if we are just overdrawn on our account, and then Jesus, by his work on the cross, comes along and zeroes out the account, just gives me enough money to pay my debt. And now I have to work to keep it in positive numbers. That's not how it works. That's not the full gospel. He goes farther than that. He adopts me into his family as his child. He floods my account with unlimited funds from the Father. And I will never, ever, ever be in spiritual debt to God again. I am covered by the perfect record of Jesus. Amen, right? It would be as if I was a billionaire with more money than I could ever spend in my life. And I, I couldn't even spend the interest. It was so great, right? Wouldn't that be nice, right? And I adopt my foster sons. If you don't know, we have three Afghani boys now and an Ethiopian boy that live with us. And it's as if I adopt my foster sons who formerly sort of lived a totally different lifestyle who br that, that brought them into poverty by their choices. And 
they come to me and they say, you know what, I want to live under your roof. I want to be your child. I want to turn away from my past life and I want to live under your roof now as your child and I want to live as your child would underneath your guidance and your rules. And I receive them into my home as my children and they open a bank account that is linked directly to my account and now every time their, uh, their account is overdrawn, uh, the bank automatically dips into mine, right? No charges, no penalties. What's mine is theirs. They did nothing to earn it. They did nothing to maintain it it, other than turn from their former life, in other words, repent, and trust me as their father. That is the gospel, right? He rescued us from slavery of sin once and for all time, just as he rescued the Jews from slavery in Egypt, a precursor to the gospel of Christ, a visual image of it. In Christ, we are saved by grace through faith, this not of ourselves, rather it is a total work of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. So what he's saying to us in in this whole thing is that I've done this work for you. So here is what I want in return. I don't want you to put other gods before me. Let me be first and foremost in your life at all times because I have set you free. So do yourself a favor and don't enslave yourself to something else or someone else again, ever again. Just follow me. And in your spiritual poverty, your account is linked to mine. You have all that I have. And if you try and pull it out and go run off and do whatever you want, like the prodigal son story teaches, the bank will overtake you. It will overtake you. But God the Father is always here to receive you back, throwing you a party that you do not deserve. That is the gospel. You never stop being God's child. Now, no matter how far away you go under Christ. God is saying the same thing to us in Galatians 5.1. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Obviously, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So we see that sin enslaves, but Christ's righteousness frees us to live a life of holiness in him. Paul was writing in Greek to Gentiles living in Galatia in that book, and the word he uses is, is, if I pronounce it correctly, eleutheria, uh, meaning liberty or freedom. It comes from the Greek word eleutheros, meaning free, not a slave, not under restraint. And the word yoke in Greek is zugos, right? Used to describe the means by which oxen were bound together and forced to carry heavy loads or pull heavy loads. We all have seen the pictures. Farmers would put a curved wooden stock over the necks of two work animals, fashioning them to one unit to pull these big heavy loads efficiently. And it keeps their head down and they're tied to a plow and they're controlled. They're enabled, that enables the, fa- the farmer to guide them and direct them at will wherever he wants to go. And that is a picture of sin in our lives. But Leviticus 26, 13 
God says to Israel this. He says, I am the, see, here he's saying it again, right? I am the Lord your God. He's always reminding them of this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and I enabled you to walk with heads held high. The gospel and freedom. All of this foreshadowing the coming Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus stood in our place, paying our sin debt. His final words on the cross, it is finished, cement this, right? It is finished. Words, everybody standing there, when he uttered them, everybody standing there would understand that those are words that are uttered in business deals when a debt is fully paid. It is finished means the debt is paid. Precisely what Jesus said with his last breath on that cross. It is paid. The debt is gone. He, brought us back, he bought us back from the oppressor. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And if I could be so bold to say you were bought at a very great price. And the freedom that we experience from this is not freedom to just do as we please because like the prodigal son story teaches and like all that we've said this morning already, that would be inviting ourselves into slavery of something else once more. Romans 6 says, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, exclamation point. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Ownership, our ownership, is transferred to Jesus by the cross. And we become slaves to righteousness. Christ is a benevolent God, a good, benevolent God. He's not harsh taskmaster. Putting him first is not a burdensome thing. It is actually true freedom in life, right? Now, the problem is that for many, true freedom or freedom is synonymous with personal independence, right? The ability to make your own decisions, to choose your own path, to do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's not true freedom. And it's not the freedom that Christ calls us into. And it's not even the freedom you have in America. You have to obey laws in America. Laws bring freedom, right? It's a misunderstanding of freedom, isn't it? Freedom is found actually in obedience to the law, not in the disregarding of it. There's a big difference. John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. Luke 4.18 tells us that he literally came to preach freedom or to proclaim freedom. Jesus wasn't setting us free to do whatever he wanted. He frees us to do what we ought, to, to liberating us to walk in relationship with God and to finally once again be the people that he originally created us to be. He said in John 8.34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the wages of sin is death, as we saw in Romans 6.23, and that is literal death. You know, we all die, right? And it is also spiritual death. 
In Christ, we believe, though, in a spiritual rebirth. As John chapter 3 teaches, we are born again in Christ. We are woken up to new life in Christ. And also, we believe in the final resurrection of the dead, the literal resurrection of the dead to eternal life with God in his kingdom of peace when he returns. Putting God first, therefore, just means letting God be God, right, in this relationship. But so many things in our life can become the ultimate thing to us, can it? We easily subject ourselves to the, to the slavery of our idols one more time every day. You know, we turn to our relationships, our careers, our pleasures, our passions, our sports, our, our money as the ultimate thing. Commandment number one is really centrally about worship. It is all about worship. The response to whatever we value most in life. Think about this. The things, the people, the concepts which occupy our thoughts receiving most of our time and most of our attention. That is what we worship. Money, a lifelong dream, pleasures, careers, social status, success, whatever. We, what, what, what you value most is really what you worship. Observe others on Super Bowl Sunday. You'll know what they worship. Everyone in this world, everyone who has ever lived and died and whoever will live and die, everyone is religious. Everyone, even if they say that they're not. Everyone worships something. You cannot get around it as a human being. It is built within your DNA, in your central core of your soul, to worship. And we all turn our worship to something. The atheist worships the human spirit or will or intellect, the mind. The progressive worships you know, personal choice and autonomy, in other words, themselves. The greedy worship wealth or whatever, what have you. We could keep listing ad nauseum. You're all, you're all adults. You know what I'm talking about, right? But as a person is woken, awakened, or awakened, awakened up <laughs> from spiritual death to, to new life in Christ, being reborn by the Spirit of God, as John, John uh, 3 describes, they respond just like the psalmist did in chapter 63, verse 1. He said, oh God, you are my God. Now notice how that starts. God has been saying to Israel this whole time, I am the Lord your God. And then this guy who responds to God well says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts after you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's worship. Then he explains why this is in verses 3 through 5. He says, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. God's love better than all of life. Do you understand that? In him we find true satisfaction. And when we worship, we make Christ the central focus of all of our affections. And we sense God's presence within us, the Spirit of God touching us and communicating the Father's love to us. 
The Bible reveals the nature of this glorious uh, God that we worship. First of all, we worship God as creator. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, and we're going to do some stuff on this in the, the community group. The father, the maker, the sustainer of all life, who began all things and who will bring history to its consummation. We worship God as king. Lord and sovereign over the cosmos, the benevolent leader of his, of, of his kingdom, you know, the one extending his rule through people who love him and obey him, obey his word. We worship God as Trinity, which is confusing to us, but you don't have to fully get it, right? But he is one God expressing himself in three persons, dwelling in perfect harmony within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We worship God as Savior, right? The rescuing God who by Jesus' life and death on the cross and the resurrection conquers sin and conquers death for our sake, making us new creations in Christ. And all of these attributes of God and quite a lot more inform our worship of him. When we put God first, we need to realize that all we're doing is saying yes to God before saying yes to anyone or anything else, including ourselves, including our own desires, including our own passions, including our own wrong thinking. The Heidelberg Catechism explains it well. It says, God requires that I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love and fear and honor God with all of my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. So the pathway to avoid putting other gods before the one true God is to simply love him right? To be in love with him. As Jesus said in answer to the question that he was asked in John chapter 6, what must we do to do the works that God requires? As his answer was, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And belief is trust. And we love what we trust. Belief is trust and we love what we trust. And Jesus understood this, which is why he framed his answer the way that he did as to what is the greatest commandment. To love God enough to put him first, you have to truly see God for who he is and what he has done for you, the rescuer. And the best way to do that is to look to our rescue of Jesus on the cross. The visible image of the invisible God as 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1.15 states. If you wonder if God loves you, look to Jesus on the cross. If you wonder if God wants to be in a relationship with you, look to what Jesus went through so that you could be together. If you wonder if you're accepted by God, hear the words of Jesus on the cross found in John 19.30. It is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. The debt is paid. If you're wondering how you can respond and uh, hear Jesus' words about following him, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, in other words, repent, and take up his cross daily and follow me, in other words, trust me. When you truly see God in Christ, 
then you will want to follow by putting him first. We don't do anything without desire, do we? You will desire it. It's exactly what God has been saying from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God says to the Israelites, and consequently to us, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is not burdensome. That is freedom. And he says the same in Christ as he rescues us, buying us back from our slavery. We are his with transferred ownership from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. To live as we were meant to live, finally, in true freedom, loving God more than anything else, placing him first before anything or anyone else because it is glorifying of a gracious, benevolent God, and also it's very good for us in life. It's life-giving. The question before us today, maybe some of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, have we repented and trusted in Christ to find true freedom? Have we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ to find true freedom? I want to give us a moment today, about a minute, to assimilate these thoughts before the Lord privately. Sort of a time of confession. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Take this next minute to consider, have you loved God and others in this way? Confess to the Lord today your sin, that thing that's standing between you and him. Ask him to create in you a clean and pure heart and to walk in these ways from here on out. And if you've ever, never considered Jesus, if you're sitting here this morning, you've never heard this stuff before, and you've never considered Jesus before today, it's time to repent and to trust to submit yourself to him in this moment, and he will make you a new creation. So I'm gonna say a little prayer, and I'm gonna go silent and let you do your own confession, and then I'll close it in about a minute. Holy Spirit, come right now and rest upon us. Bring us into the throne room. Bring us into your presence. Let us feel the contrition and the weight of our sin. But also let us find the freedom and salvation that is in you. It is good to be quiet before a holy God, to be reminded of what Steady said last week and what we look at today. That you, God, are creator, sustainer, king, savior, and Lord over all creation that you created us for certain purposes. And at the core of that is eternal worship of you, a good and loving God full of mercy and full of grace. We know that sin and holiness are like oil and water. They cannot exist together. We ask that you would purify us and let us walk in ways that are righteous and pure and glorifying to your name and life-giving to us. And we thank you 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.